Hebrews 4, 1-13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is life-giving, it is precious, it is also sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask this morning, Lord, that your spirit would use the reading and the preaching of the word, despite the weakness of the human vessel, use it to feed and nourish your sheep. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The last two weeks we've heard some very hard and difficult things concerning the dangers of falling away from Jesus. Last week, the author of Hebrews used the example of the Old Testament Israelites, the Exodus community in particular, those Israelites who were brought out of Egypt but rebelled against God in the wilderness, thus never entering the Promised Land. And he used that as a warning to us about what will happen if we don't truly trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Like those Israelites, we will never enter the eternal rest of everlasting life. We will never enter into the promised land if we prove that our trust, that our faith is in anything other than Jesus Christ for our salvation. I'm going to spend three weeks on this portion of the book of Hebrews. But in essence, I'm going to preach three very different sermons. Next week, I'm going to focus in on the text of verses 1 through 13 of chapter 4. 
The following week, I'm going to focus or narrow in on verse 12 and what verse 12 is saying about the, the Word of God, the Bible, the Holy, the Holy Scriptures. But this week, I want to examine the theme of rest. As you can see, this word rest is a major focus in the text. It appears no less than eight times in the first 13 verses of chapter 4 in Hebrews. And the theme of rest is a major theme throughout the scriptures, starting way back, as I just read in Genesis chapter 2, with the seventh day of creation, a day set apart by God that we today call the Sabbath. So this morning I want to focus on the Sabbath, on this day set apart by God for, yes, physical rest, but more importantly, a day for spiritual rest. We need to have a good background here, a good understanding of what the Sabbath is all about if we're going to go on and understand Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And not only do we want to understand the idea of the Sabbath to help us understand this passage better, we also want to understand it as a church. Because I do believe that by uh, recapturing a biblical idea of Sabbath rest, we as the people of God will, will benefit, we will grow in our faith and our love for our Lord and Savior. I want to begin this sermon by doing something a little unorthodox, and uh, that's going to be by reading from this book here, this children's book, one of my kids' books that I stole or uh, borrowed. I borrowed it the first time I preached the sermon, and that was over a year ago, and they still haven't gotten it back. So (laughs) Um, I'm going to read from this book. It's called A Little House Birthday. Uh, We love the Little House in the Prairie books and TV show in our house. In fact, when we moved here from Lancaster on our moving day, we passed the six hours in our van by listening to the audio book of Little House in the Prairie. I'm not going to read the whole book. I'm just going to read the first couple pages because it has to do with this idea of the Sabbath, this theme of rest. So uh, if you've heard this before, bear with me. But I'll begin reading. Once upon a time, a little girl named Laura lived in the big woods of Wisconsin in a little house made of logs. Laura lived in the little house with her pa, her ma, her big sister Mary, her little sister Carrie, and their good old bulldog Jack. The winter seemed long, and Laura and Mary began to be tired of staying always in the house, especially on Sundays. The time went so slowly. Every Saturday night, Paul filled the washtub with fresh snow and put the washtub on the cook stove. Soon the snow melted to water, and it was time for Laura and Mary to take their baths. Laura took her bath first because she was, she was littler than Mary. Then Mary had her bath, then Ma had her bath, and then Paul had his. Now they were all clean for Sunday. And on Sunday mornings, Laura and Mary dressed in their best clothes with fresh ribbons in their hair. On Sundays, they could not run or shout or be noisy. They must sit quietly and listen while Ma read stories to them. They might look at pictures and they might hold their rag dolls nicely and talk to them, but there was nothing else they could do. One Sunday, Laura could not bear it any longer. She began to play with Jack and run and shout. Paul told her to sit in her chair and be quiet. Laura began to cry. So Paul took her on his knee and cuddled her and told her a story. Soon that long Sunday was almost over, and Laura lay in her trundle bed with Mary, listening to Paul sing Sunday hymns on the fiddle. The next sound she heard was Ma by the cook stove making breakfast. It was Monday, and Sunday would not come again for a whole week. 
So Laura thought in that story, Sunday will not come for a whole week. I wonder how many of us have those same thoughts when it comes to the Sabbath, what we now call the Lord's Day. Now, I personally think Laura's attitude about Sunday was a little justified. What she describes in her house sounded terrible to me. Um, And I don't want to slander the name of Ma and Paul Ingalls. I think they were doing their best to raise a pious family out in the prairie or here in in the woods of Wisconsin. But as it pertains to the Sabbath, I think This little story shows us one of two traps that we can get caught up in. The first trap, which I think is not so common in our culture anymore, uh, although in the not-too-distant past it was probably more common, is to think about the Sabbath in what we might call very legalistic terms. What are we not allowed to do on the Sabbath? All these rules and restrictions that we can sometimes put on ourselves and even on other people. We may be reminded of the old blue laws where state governments used to mandate that shops and businesses uh, were closed on the Lord's Day. Or worse, it might be reminiscent of the Pharisees of Christ's Day who added hundreds of man-made rules, do's and don'ts concerning what it meant to keep the Sabbath. That's the first trap I think we can fall into. The second trap, which is much more common in our church today, and when I say our church, I don't mean this individual church. I mean the church at large, the the universal church, if you will. I think the second trap is much more common in the church today, and that's to just simply brush the Sabbath off as nothing special, just another day. If we make it to church, to worship, that's great, but there's nothing unique or special about it. We're free to go about living our lives as we would the other six days of the week. You know, I think that was illustrated well. I read a little book one time called How to Walk into Church by a man named Tony Payne. And at one point, the author is trying to get to the heart of the modern mindset that many Christians may have about gathering together for worship every Lord's Day. And he said, he comes to this conclusion that many people must see uh, going to church, gathering together for worship, as a tedious chore. And he writes, you'll get there when you can, you'll feel a little slight pang of guilt when you don't, but certainly not enough of a pang to prevent you from missing it reasonably often, especially if there's something more pressing or attractive to do. He goes on to say that judging by the attendance statistics in most churches, including the attendance of faithful, solid, Bible-believing Christians, this must be the mindset of more than half the congregation, because on any given week, around a third of regular attenders aren't there. Or perhaps our modern mindset concerning the Lord's Day was embodied much more clearly on Christmas Day of 2016. December 25th happened to fall on a Sunday three years ago. And I was more than discouraged to read and hear of churches actually canceling their Lord's Day worship service because, the, because of the Christmas holiday. You know, a side note, the, the Puritans and the old school Presbyterians, our theological ancestors here, did not celebrate holidays like Easter or Christmas. They saw them as man-made holidays. And their fear was that we would put these man-made holidays over the Lord's Day. They said the New Testament has only appointed one holy day, which is where we get the word holiday from, and that's the Lord's Day. That's the Sabbath. 
Now, I'm not against Easter or Christmas. I think, actually, for the church, it can be helpful for us to structure our worship lives around the events in Christ's life. They can be good opportunities for us to remember these important moments in the life of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's a little hard to argue that the Puritans' fears weren't, uh, weren't really warranted when you see churches closing their doors because that Sunday just happened to be the 25th of December. Now, these are two extremes. On the one hand, we have what's what we might call the legalistic approach to the Lord's Day. On the other hand, the lackadaisical approach to remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. And admittedly, even in preaching on this topic of the Sabbath, there's a real danger in me as the preacher erring on either side of this discussion. There's a real danger in me being either too legalistic or too willy-nilly. You know, on the one hand, I don't want to bind your consciences with extra biblical rules and regulations. On the other hand, I don't want to present the topic of the Sabbath uh, in a way as to lead anyone to believe that there's nothing sacred or special out of this one day out of seven. Because there is something sacred and special about it. As we'll see this morning, the Sabbath day is a wonderful gift of God where he gives us what we need most, spiritual rest and nourishment. But the Sabbath also gives us a weekly reminder of a great hope that in Jesus Christ there is a rest, a true rest from the toils of this world, a rest from the wandering in the wilderness of this world, a world that is not our home, an eternal rest, where we will enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with Jesus forever. That's what the Sabbath does. So there is something special about this day. And my aim this morning, with the hopes that the Spirit keeps me from erring on either side, my aim is that I want to strive to preach what the Word of God says. I want to help us all see how the Sabbath is, as Jesus himself said, created for us. I want to give us a biblical understanding of this day of rest because, again, it becomes an important theme in the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's my goal, it's my hope that the Spirit would instill in us a rich appreciation for the Sabbath day, this blessed gift from God himself. Put put in us a desire to remember it, to keep it holy, And that the Spirit would lead us all to rejoice in the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ, in whom we do have an eternal rest. Now you'll see from my sermon title there are three elements to the Sabbath from Genesis chapter 2. What does Moses, the author of Genesis, say about the Sabbath here? He tells us it's a day where God rested, God blessed it, and God made it holy. Or that is, God set it apart. So first, the idea that God rested, what does that mean? We might struggle with this idea a little bit because we tend to think of rest as something we as humans need on a physical level. Our bodies grow weary. We get tired. There are times for us when rest is exactly what our bodies need to recover from an illness or an injury. But that's not what the word rest means here. God was not tired. God was not sick. 
He did not need to rest to regain his strength. Rather, this word rest, which, by the way, in Hebrew is Shabbat, where we get the word Sabbath from, simply means that God stopped doing the work he was doing. So Genesis 2, verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, the heavens and the earth were finished. That work of creation is done. Earlier in Genesis chapter 1, we see God giving form to the creation. We see God filling the void, if you will. When we get to chapter 2, then we see God rest from this work. In other words, this work is done. Creation is finished. The Sabbath day shows us that God is done with his unique work of creating all things out of nothing. Now, that does not mean that God is not involved in this creation. He is actively ruling and governing and preserving all his creatures and all their actions. We call that God's work of providence. It means, though, that his act of creating, again, creating all things out of nothing, is completely finished now. And this tells us something very important about God. When we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, when we remember that day when God rested, we are reminding ourselves that God finishes what he starts. Just as God finished his work of creation, we, as we wander through the wilderness of this world and life, can have the full assurance that God will finish his work of redemption. His work of creation was full. It was a perfect work. God looked at it and said it was very good. And his work of redemption, his work of saving a people for himself, his work of redeeming all creation and bringing about the new creation, this too will be fully and perfectly completed. We can have the assurance of that. And when we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, we are reminding ourselves of this great truth, that God finishes what he starts. And that is a reminder, I believe, that we as fallen people need every single week. We need that reminder every week that God will finish and complete that good work that he began in us, that he will finish and complete our salvation. So we see the Sabbath is first a day of rest that stands to remind us the good news of the gospel, that God will finish his work of redemption, of salvation. But we also see in in Genesis chapter 2 that God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Really, the blessing of the Sabbath day is in the fact that God made it holy. This day, this Sabbath day, has been blessed because it has been set apart as something sacred by God himself. God himself set this day apart. He consecrated it. He made it holy. He dedicated it with the intent that as we as his creatures remember this this day, as we keep the Sabbath, we too will be blessed. And brothers and sisters, this day, the Sabbath day, notice when it was given to us. 
this was given to us before the fall, before mankind rebelled against God. It was given to us before the law of the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Sabbath is what we call a creation ordinance. It's one of several things along with marriage, work, procreation that was ordained by God himself at the creation. This is something that God and his sovereign wisdom gave us as a blessing even before sin came into, into the picture. It's something that God knew that we would need even before we were fallen and depraved. And if that's true, if mankind needed the Sabbath before we were fallen, before we were sinners, then of course the question is, now that we are sinners, now that we have fallen, how much more so do we need the blessing of the Sabbath day in our lives? I wonder, do we think about the Sabbath day as something we need? Do we think of it as a blessing from God? Maybe we have the mindset that we don't need a break from our worldly affairs, from our work, from our studies, from our sporting events, whatever it is that we use the other six days in the week to accomplish. But I want to encourage us to not fall into that trap of thinking that this is not something we need. Our creator, the one who made us, knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows exactly what we need. And when we fail to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy, aren't we in some way saying to God, Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessing, but no thanks? That may not be our intention, but I think that's the implication of our actions. And I know this is a hard thing, and I I think I've said this before in our series of in Hebrews, I know this is a hard thing because the world is constantly making demands on us to not remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But you know what, brothers and sisters? It was always a hard thing for the people of God to do. Ever since the fall, it has been a hard thing for the people of God to remember the Sabbath. The nation of Israel, they were unique among all the other nations of the ancient world in that they were the one nation that set aside one day out of seven as a day of holy rest. And it was costly to them. Nehemiah, in chapter 13 of the book Nehemiah, he describes how countercultural the Sabbath was to the nation of Israel. The book of Nehemiah is describing the return of the Jews from the Babylonian exile, and it describes the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem and of the temple. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah is desperately trying to protect the Israelites from falling back into the same covenant unfaithfulness that led them to be exiled in the first place. And part of that covenant unfaithfulness, by the way, was a failure to remember the Sabbath. But Nehemiah writes in chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah, As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. 
Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come to guard the gates and keep the Sabbath day holy. So Nehemiah has to shut out merchants and vendors to keep them out of the city of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. You see, the Sabbath day was costly to those vendors and merchants, yes, but it was costly to the people of God. They were dependent on those merchants coming around. It wasn't like they could just go to Kroger's or to Walmart any time. They had to rely on these people to come in and sell them goods and services that they were incapable of producing themselves. And yet, it was worth the cost to obey the word of the Lord, to honor the Sabbath, to receive that blessing from God. It was worth the sacrifice. And this is part of what it meant for the nation of Israel to be a priestly nation. When they were faithful in keeping the Sabbath, and really when you and I are faithful in keeping the Sabbath, not only are we enjoying a blessing from God, we are also declaring a truth about God himself to the world around us. We are confessing that God is the Lord of all. We are confessing to the world around us that he is the creator And he made the Sabbath, and he set it apart. And we are making known to the world our commitment as his people to serve and obey the one true and living God. Keeping the Sabbath holy is part of our testimony to the world around us about the God that we love and serve, about the God who made us and the God who saves us. That's kind of the theological groundwork of the Sabbath day. But I think the natural question that many of us would have then is, how do we do it? How do we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? And this is where that slippery slope that I talked about earlier this morning comes into play. I would share one thing that was helpful for me, and maybe it's helpful for you. The church I grew up in, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, uh, Westminster Presbyterian Church. Uh, my, my pastor, Dr. Michael Rogers, preached several sermons throughout my time there on the Sabbath day. And I'll never forget what he said concerning what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. He said, that, he said, instead of thinking of keeping the Sabbath holy in terms of what you don't do, start thinking about it in terms of what you will do to set this day apart for the Lord. That was helpful for me. The issue of remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is not an issue of one prohibition after another. Will we go out to eat? Will we go shopping? Is it okay to watch football or play sports or go for a walk or things like this? Rather, keeping the Sabbath holy really is an issue of being intentional about setting that day apart for holy use for worship. I really appreciate how our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, talks about remembering the Sabbath. It says that the Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord when men and women and boys and girls, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. 
Now what's, what, now, what's interesting to me is that if you ever sit in on a presbytery exam where they are examining candidates for ministry in our denomination, one thing we all must do is make any exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith known, any place where we might disagree with the Confession of Faith. And almost every single time, and myself included, a ministry candidate will take exception to this section in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it's all because of that little phrase that the Sabbath is to be a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations. That recreations part is the stickler for many of us. Does that mean, and I've heard many men say this on the floor of Presbytery, does that mean that we can't take a walk with our family on the Sabbath day? Isn't that a worldly recreation? And I think the one thing that was helpful for me in wrestling over this is to remember that words in the 17th century, when our confession was written, don't always mean the same thing that they mean in the 21st century. If one of the men who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think, came and sat in on one of our presbytery exams and heard someone say, you know, I don't believe it's a sin to toss a football with my son or to take a walk with my family on the Lord's Day, he'd probably say in his Elizabethan English, neither doth I. Like, that's not the point. That's not the heart of what the writers were talking about. What they were talking about is not letting the normal activities of our week intrude on this one day. You have six days to work. You have six days to labor. You have six days to pursue your, quote, worldly recreations. The seventh day is set apart by God himself. Keep it set apart. Keep it set apart for, as the confession says, both public and private worship. Rest from your worldly labors. But know that that rest is not idleness. It is a resting in God through worship. I love what John Murray says about this. He says, there is a release from the labors of the six days. But the Sabbath is also a release to the contemplation of the glory of God. We are freed from our worldly concerns so that we can turn our full heart, our attention, our worship towards our holy God. Keeping the Sabbath holy means that we set aside our worldly cares and affairs as best we can and use the day to turn our attention to the glory of God. We rest from our labors so that we can be intentional about resting in the Lord. That's why we gather every Lord's Day. That's why gathered Christian worship is not only the centerpiece of the Sabbath day, but it should be the centerpiece of our entire week. We are coming to rest in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, there is no true rest apart from the Lord. Think about this. If the Sabbath day was blessed, if it was given to man as a, as a blessing, just as Jesus said that man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for men, then for us today, 
the Sabbath is an even greater blessing than it was for those Israelites during Moses' day. Because not only do we have the reminder that God will finish the work of redemption, we have the privilege of seeing redemption already accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. Our children's catechism says, what day of the week is the Christian Sabbath? It asks that question because, as you know, in the Old Testament, the last day of the week was the Sabbath, what we call Saturday. So it asks, what day of the week is the Christian Sabbath? And the answer is, the first day of the week, or the Lord's Day. And then the catechism asks, well, why is it called the Lord's Day? And the answer is, because on that day, the, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Redemption has been accomplished. And that's why Christians, and we see this as early as the pages of the New Testament, this is why Christians gather on the first day of the week for worship. Unlike the Israelites in Moses' day, who were looking forward to the coming of the promised Messiah, we get to look back on what he has done for us. If the Sabbath in the Old Testament reminded God's people that he is a God who would finish what he started, how much more so is it a reminder for us now that we have seen the coming of Jesus Christ? We begin our week in worship, declaring that Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, has come. We begin our week by proclaiming that the long-promised rescuer of God's people has come. That he has taken the punishment for the sins of God's people on the cross. That three days later he grows victoriously over the dead, throwing down our great enemies of sin and death and the devil. And he has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And the Sabbath reminds us that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to complete his work of recreation. That is the restoration of all things under heaven and on earth, and that for those who look to Jesus in repentance of our sins and look to him in faith and what he has done for us for our salvation, the Sabbath reminds us that we will enjoy an eternal rest in the presence of Christ. That's what we're declaring every Lord's Day when we gather. Every Lord's Day, every Sabbath is for us in essence, an Easter celebration. And is it not a blessing to come together every week and be reminded of this great truth and promise? Is it not a blessing every week to enjoy feasting together with God's people and with Jesus Christ himself? That's what's happening That's what's happening here in public gathered worship. That's what's happening when we remember the the Sabbath and keep it holy. We are receiving a blessing from God because the Sabbath reminds us of the rest we have right now in Jesus Christ as he feeds and nourishes our souls in this weary land. And it reminds us of the rest we will have for all eternity when we as God's people finally do Enter the promised land, the new creation. 
The Sabbath points us forward to the great and final rest when we sit down with Jesus Christ at the great banquet table, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why the author of Hebrews brings in the Sabbath when he's talking about those Israelites. Those unbelieving Israelites never entered the promised land and therefore they never entered into rest. And it was an image. It was symbolic of them never entering into the eternal rest, their salvation. The promised land wasn't just about that land in the Middle East. It was to be a picture, a type and shadow of the eternal land of rest, the new creation that all of God's people would have. And we, when we come and gather with God's people every week, when we remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, we are declaring to ourselves that if we hold on to Christ in faith, we will enter into an eternal rest with God and all the saints forever. Sunday would not come for a whole week. That's what Laura thought. With joy and happiness as her Sundays drew to a close. But for us, I really do hope that we say at the end of the Lord's Day, at the end of our time together in worship, with eager anticipation that it's only one more week until the Sabbath.